Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing me back safely, for caring for those in the body here and, and all over the world as you do every week. Thank you for gathering us here so consistently. Father, I was reminded when I traveled and I saw your work and other bodies of just how much we're all alike, how similar we really are, Father. Languages will be different, cultures will be different, but uh, those things are superficial, Father. The true heart of who we are, both in, in the things that we value and love about being in the body and, and Father, for that matter, even our sins, the things we all uh, stumble on, they're so similar. That's why your word, Father, is, is so important to all of us. It was written with, with us in mind, and even though it was written long ago and perhaps originally to different people than, than who receive it today, it doesn't matter because, Father, in you, we're all so similar. We're all called in the same way. We all have the same spirit. We all entered in in the same baptism. We all struggle with the same flesh. We all needed the same Savior. And whether we're different because of language or culture or background, whether we come from one part of the world or another, it doesn't matter. Father, men make differences out of these things in, in hatred and in sin. But you, you see us all of one blood, Father, you say in the Scripture. And I was so thankful, Father, to see that again and to be reminded of that again so that as we minister in the place you've assigned us, we wouldn't think ourselves better. Or we wouldn't think ourselves worse. We wouldn't think of ourselves at all. We think only of you. As our Lord, our Savior, as our teacher, as the leader of the church, as our example. So, Father, teach us. Teach us by your word this morning. Teach us out of this book of Judges. Even though it is also a story of things long ago in a different people in a different part of the world, Father, it's just about us in some different way. We pray that you'd show us that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I prayed, we're back in the book of Judges. Now, we're almost done with this book. Thank you for your patience. We're in chapter 20 out of 21, so the light at the end of the tunnel, the proverbial light is almost there. We're almost at the end. In our last study, we stopped at the very moment in chapter 20 when the tribes of Israel were gathering together to go in battle against one of their own, that is, against the tribe of Benjamin. They had just conducted this inquiry, a kind of trial, really, in which 12 of the tribes took up the matter of the Ephraimite man and his concubine, who had been treated so badly by the Benjamites when they had visited that town. And in the course of that inquiry, the 12 tribes gave opportunity for the tribe of Benjamin to show up, defending themselves, if they will, but the Benjamites did not take advantage of that opportunity. They didn't show, and so they were tried in abstentia. And in that trial, they determined, the tribes determined that the Benjamites were guilty of extreme sin against the Ephraimite. And so the tribes determined that they would do something about the sin of their brothers and the tribe of Benjamin. So as we studied those events last time, we noted the tribes are all doing here what is right only in their own eyes. They aren't applying God's law. They are not seeking justice from the appointed judges of their day. They're not doing this the right way. Instead, what they're doing is applying justice in a very selective way, according to their own wisdom, according to their own desires. For example, they've conveniently overlooked their own sins in various areas of life. Never mind the fact of the sin of the Ephraimite himself, who did what he did to his concubine. They've only thought of one concern, dealing with the sin of the Benjamites who conducted themselves so poorly in the town of Gebeah. So while the Benjamites were willing 
to do their own mistakes, certainly both in what they did in the city and then later as they protected those perverse men within their tribe. The same can be said about the rest of the tribes. There's no innocent party here. In fact, you could actually say that self-dependence is itself the chief sin, the chief value driving all that we're seeing, not only in this moment, but truly the whole book of Judges. The law of Moses was given to the nation of Israel back at the mountain for the purpose, at least one of the purposes, of uniting this group of people into one nation under God, as we like to say, under Yahweh who brought them into existence. But what we've seen since they've entered the land under Joshua in the days of Judges is 13 tribes doing whatever they want, whatever feels right, whatever they think might work best for them. None of them showing any regard for God or for His law. So as we ended last week, the tribes had made one last step before entering battle, and that was to approach the tabernacle in Bethel and inquire of God, the text said back in verse 18, inquire of God concerning the coming battle. That's where we left off. And you remember we looked at verse 18 last week. We noted that the word for God, the Hebrew word being used in that verse, was Elohim. Elohim, not Yahweh, but Elohim, which is the generic word in Hebrew for God. Yahweh is the personal name of the God of Israel. Elohim is just the word God. It can mean any kind of God, which would tell us that when it says the people of Israel approached Elohim, it means they approached a God, not the God. They come with no personal understanding of who this God is. They simply come like pagans do to their own gods in an obligatory ritualistic way because it seems the right thing to do before we run off and do what we were going to do anyway. That subtle detail was a clue to us in the text telling us that this nation has approached Yahweh as the pagans around them are approaching their own pagan gods in this ritual form only. What they want is a superstitious kind of result. A blessing from this God so that they can get what they expect when they go into battle. And you remember the only question they thought to ask this God, the only one they brought to him in the course of this encounter, was the question of which of our tribes should go forward first in the battle. It almost sounds like they're trying to settle an argument, isn't it? Like two kids fighting over the back seat. Mom, who gets it? They, they don't really care about the God that they're worshiping, except that he can solve a problem that they have. Now, God answered this prayer, or this request. He gave them the answer. The answer was Judah will go up first. And we looked at that last time and we said this answer is actually an allusion to the day to come in which the tribe of Judah will produce a king who will lead Israel out of sin. So in a sense, God is giving them a very wry answer. He's giving them the answer they need now, but he's alluding to something much bigger that they're too blind to see at this moment. So now, with that answer, with the answer that Judah will go up first, the tribes are ready for battle against Benjamin. But... Just the fact that God answered that one question, don't let that get you thinking that God is behind this. That in other words, God endorses what they're going to go do. Far from it. And in fact, the way it goes forward will show you that this is not something in keeping with God's desires. God is going to use the pride and the independence of these tribes against them in order to teach them a lesson. And that's where we pick up now in verse 19. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gilbeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gilbeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gilbeah and felled to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. 
But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. The sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gilbeah the second day and fell to the ground again, 18,000 men of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. Well, let's pause there, because as you can tell, the events of this battle aren't going the way you might have expected. It's certainly not if you were one of the 12 tribes attacking Benjamin. It says here that twice... The people of Israel, and that's referring to the 12 tribes that are attacking the 13th one, Benjamin. It says here, the people of Israel went against Benjamin, and then twice they're defeated. You might think, well, the Lord would allow the tribes to defeat Benjamin, since after all, he told them who was to go first, and clearly Benjamin's done a lot of really nasty things. You would expect they deserve to be defeated. And I assure you, that's what the other tribes were thinking also, which is why they went up. But friends, the Lord's first concern in the outcome of this battle is not who wins. He's in control of that anyway. It's not like there's any surprise in the matter for him. In all situations, the Lord's first concern for his people is not our personal happiness. It is our personal holiness that is his first concern. And here's another example of that kind of a moment playing out in which the person, or group of people in this case, who has a certain idea in their heart about what is the right thing for them, what pleases them, is contrary to what will be holy for them. And so the God of Israel frustrates their pride. And friends, as you look at the story of Judges, throughout the book of Judges, there has been a need for a whole lot of holiness all throughout this book. And that's why you see God frustrating plans left and right. And in this case, it's a perfect example. For example, you've got Benjamin, who, as I said already, has been acting in evil and certainly deserves to be defeated in battle. They needed to see their independence, their desire for independence, play out in such a way that it shows that that's not a successful strategy. But if God's going to bring Benjamin to the point of repentance, he can't do it absent the other 12 tribes. What good does it do God if he's got a holy and upright Benjamin in the midst of 12 unruly, independent, self-minded, disobedient tribes? One-thirteenth of the problem is solved. That's not solving the problem. So he's not just humbling one tribe here. He is going to work in all of the tribes, and he does it in only a way that God can do it. He puts one working against the other, and he gets the result he wants out of both. So the problem here, friends, that we're trying to solve is not one tribe doing one thing wrong under one moment. The concern here is the whole of Israel lacking submission to the Lord's authority, to his law, and therefore you have the Lord working to correct all of them as he prepares to bring justice to one of them. Notice in the first engagement as God begins this work. In the first engagement they lost 22,000. And then notice in the second battle they lost 18,000. And, of course, do a little math, and you come to 40,000. And, friends, 40 in the Bible, when it's being used to represent something symbolically, it always represents a time or a trial of testing. Some moment in which God tests or tries someone in such a way that he demonstrates the truth of what's in their heart. So what the text is telling us here is the Lord set Israel, the tribes of Israel, against itself in this civil war in order to show a lesson to all of them. He allowed one tribe to defeat 12 tribes so as to communicate his displeasure at the arrogance and independence and disobedience 
of those tribes. And that number 40 stands out so that somebody, hopefully, would get the point. We certainly do. He tested their hearts by allowing the defeat. And notice what happens as a result of his testing. Now, we've seen two of the stops so far. We're going to continue to see a little more activity, and we're going to string it all together before it's over. But as you watch this play out, notice that each time that the tribes return to the Lord, having been defeated, unexpectedly so, they learn to submit to his authority a little more each time. You can see the work of God in their heart playing out. Notice here the pattern, first time. In the first encounter, what did they ask? Nothing more than who gets to go first. They didn't use God's personal name, which, as we said, indicates they had a very distant understanding of him. But then you get to the first defeat. Now they're perplexed. Now they're saddened. Now they don't have a clue what to expect. God just rocked their world a little bit. And they come back after having expected a victory, probably because God answered them. That must have been their endorsement, they thought. They've never asked him if he wants them to fight. They've never asked God if he would grant them a victory. They've assumed all of that. So when they've come back to him, they have to readdress how they work with a God like this. They have to rethink this relationship. Until they do that, they're treating him like a genie in a bottle. They act as if they controlled the relationship. They act as if whatever little relationship they had was in their hands to control. They approach God when they needed something. They asked the questions that were on their mind. They expected God to answer and assign blessing, and then they went out from there. That's acting like God is a genie in a bottle. And, friends, this is something we all have a tendency to do, some of us perhaps more than others. And I should add, the enemy loves to send us false teaching that encourages this mindset. That's where the prosperity gospel comes from. The notion that God wants you to be happy and rich is a lie that Scripture never gives, but the enemy does, because it feeds this false thought. It feeds this thought that we can look at God like a genie, and if we dance the right dance or say the right words, he'll respond in kind, a kind of quid pro quo relationship, because what, after all, whatever makes me happy must be what makes God happy. That's a lie. Do you know what makes you happy? Honestly, do you know what makes people happy? Sin. All kinds of it. We get happiest when our flesh is fed. The problem with that is it's a temporal happiness. It's a deceptive happiness. Ultimately, in eternity, it's no happiness at all. But it feels happy. These people wanted something that they thought would make them feel better. Revenge. Justice. Putting down an arrogant tribe that was rebelling against their authority. That's all human pride. And what God says to them is, your plan is not my plan. Listen to me. I'll give you a plan. Don't listen to me. I'll frustrate your plan. Let's take note of how he responds. Look at how God responds to those who approach him in this superficial way. If we reduce our relationship with the Lord to merely one of convenience, then you should expect to see similar consequences. Obviously, our situations are different. We're not fighting people in battle necessarily. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have similar techniques for getting our attention. Because he's not a genie. You can't control the conversations you have with God. You cannot demand certain outcomes as if your agenda is his agenda automatically. He has made a way through Christ that we would have the opportunity to know the awesome, almighty creator, God, so that at the end of it all, we might become more like him, not that we would have him become more like us. And that's the fundamental issue here. Who's in control? 
if you ever get into the situation where you try to turn this around, and again, sometimes we do it without thinking about it. It's subtle in the way we pray or in the way we think about God. If you ever get to the point, though, where you're turning this relationship around in your head and you're making your relationship with God about Him meeting your desires as opposed to us making Him pleased in His concerns, if you ever do that, then you might find yourself in ruins much like the nation of Israel is finding itself here. Plans frustrated. Bad outcomes. A lot of hand-wringing in the body of Christ, a lot of things that lead people in the body of Christ to sit there and say, where is God and how could he let these bad things happen and who is the God that could ever have this happen and how could God ever do these? Most of that, in my opinion, comes out of a poor understanding of what God's really trying to get out of our life on earth. His concern is not about those things most of the time. Those things are important. I'm not saying he is careless, but what I am saying is, at the end of it all, we die At the end of it all, everything you collect on this earth stays here without you. At the end of it all, whatever you did to make your body feel good today is meaningless once it's in the grave. All of those things pass away. So if you think God has your best interest at heart, then you have to acknowledge His interest will be eternal because you are eternal, not temporal, not at the end of it all. But when we're fixed on our little part of the planet, we're thinking about ourselves every day as we all do, it becomes so easy to start thinking, this is what matters. And if it matters to me, well, then certainly it must matter to God, because God loves me. No, friends, God loves you. That's why it doesn't matter to Him. Because He's not going to fall into that trap. God frustrates our plans sometimes to get our attention so that we will stop seeing Him as a genie and start asking more fundamental questions about who are we in Christ? How will I be judged at the judgment seat? What will be my place in eternity? And how is my everyday life getting in the way of those goals rather than promoting them? He'll bring us to the point where we humble ourselves And we seek Him because holiness is the goal. Holiness brings true eternal happiness in place of what we try to present for ourselves. Notice the effect. After the first loss and the people get their wake-up call, they must have known something's not right. But look at the shock effect. It's not a full solution yet. In verse 22, it says, The people respond to the first defeat by encouraging themselves. Literally in Hebrew, the text says, The people made themselves strong. So what we're seeing here is despite the attack, they're still determined to depend on their own strength. So we're not seeing the full breakthrough that we want yet. They are simply assuming we need to try harder. What's the old thing that Einstein is credited with saying, right? If you do the same thing over again, expect a different result. That's the definition of insanity. So maybe they're acting a little crazy right now. But there is a glimmer of hope because the loss has shaken their confidence in themselves. So before the second battle, they go back to Bethel. And this time the text says the people wept. Well, that's a change. We haven't seen that yet. But they could just be crying because they lost 22,000 people. Right? Remember Esau? Not all tears are true repentance. We're not sure where this is going yet. But another piece of evidence, they inquire of Yahweh. It says, not Elohim this time, Yahweh. This time they use the personal name of God. And that's an important, meaningful change from the last visit. They've moved away now, it seems, from being a people who believe a God exists, but who don't have a need or interest in pursuing Him in a personal way. Now they've become a people who recognize that it is the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, who is their God, and He is present in their tabernacle, and they need to come to Him in humility. Now, I'm not saying they've gone the full length of that understanding yet, but they're moving there. They're a step closer. 
But I agree. I think the weeping here is nothing more than a response to the death of those that they lost. I don't think they've reached full repentance here. And here's why I say that. Because when you repent fully and you humble yourself fully before the Lord, you stop making demands. And what you do instead is you put before Him your sin. You acknowledge where you are and you throw yourself on the mercy of God and you ask Him for His plans, His demands. You reverse the relationship back to where it should be. And they haven't made that full turn yet. They're still showing self-dependence. They're still strengthening themselves, as it says. They've made no attempt to acknowledge, much less address the sin that has separated them from God. So we still need to see Act 2, which, of course, we did. The Lord says, go up again. He sends them right back into the trap. And in verse 24, they attack a second time. And a second time, they're defeated. Now they lose 18,000. A total now of 40,000. Maybe the shock of that loss, or maybe from the coded meaning of the number 40, maybe something like that caught their attention. But whatever it was, after the second one, it appears the people finally get the point. Because look how they return to him now after the second defeat. Verse 26. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So everything starts off very similarly to the first two encounters, but it very soon after that changes in some meaningful ways. First, when they go up, you notice this time they approach the Lord in a new way. They weep again, but now they're combining that with fasting before the Lord. Now, as we said a moment ago, weeping in and of itself, by itself, that doesn't automatically mean repentance. I mean, if anyone's been a parent more than like a year, you know the difference, right? Kids are very good at crying without repentance. And that's what I think we saw the first time. But here's the difference. There's no mistaking the meaning of fasting. To my experience, no one fakes fasting. In other words, you don't come to the Lord in prayer and fasting unless there's something genuine behind it. And that's our first clue that there's something going on in their heart. The second one, and I think even more compelling, is that they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Where does that come from? What compels them to do that? The law does. And they're at the tabernacle, which is the place in which these things are supposed to be done. They're required before the Lord. Before a person could approach the Lord in Israel for any meaningful reason at the tabernacle, they had to come through a series of sacrifices that the law required in order to obtain ritual cleanliness. And they're doing it here. In the past two examples, there's no statement at all about them doing any such thing. They approached literally in an arrogant way, presuming to be able to approach the God of Israel without doing anything to clean themselves ritually, without observing the law. I mean, who does such a thing? Can you imagine walking into a court of law in our world and acting that way? Not following the rules of the court, not listening to what the bailiff says or the judge says, just acting like you own the place? How far would that get you in our court, much less God's? But that's what they were doing. Now they approach in a new way, in the proper way. And then lastly, they approach through, it says, the high priest. Now it's not clear from the text if the high priest was involved at all in those earlier encounters But friends, if they weren't making sacrifices in the prior encounters, then there really would have been no role for the priest by and large, because that's what he's there for. He's their intercessor. 
Now they seem to recognize the need for an intercessor, which if you trace back the thinking, why do you make a sacrifice? Because you have sin. Why do you have an intercessor? Because you are not worthy to approach on your own merit. So the whole notion of making sacrifices, going to a priest, etc., all of that suggests that in the heart of the worshiper there's a concession, a recognition that I'm a sinner, I can't approach on my own merit, I'm unworthy, I need this intercession. That's now present, where before it wasn't. This would mark, I would argue, a bright moment in an otherwise very dark period for the nation in the time of Judges. This one little moment where they moved from arrogance to repentance. From independence to submission to the Lord. But in order to get them to this point, what did it require? Oh, just the death of 40,000 of their countrymen. Don't underestimate how much the Lord wants our obedience. Consider what he was willing to do here to give it. He allowed 40,000 disobedient Jews to perish, rightly so, and this isn't to malign God whatsoever. They went into battle of their own volition. They fought in a way that God did not prescribe. They are acting in their own independence and stubborn willfulness, and they got the result that that gets, and this is not on God. But he allowed it. Why did he allow it? He did it in order to impress upon the rest of the people that they have to address their sin. They have to be concerned with holiness or they have no basis for relationship with him. And then all of this, by the way, comes even before he addresses the sin of the Benjamites. We still have that problem. You know, the Benjamites keep winning, but ultimately they've got to be defeated too. And he hasn't even gotten to that yet. Once again, the point in our relationship is holiness, not happiness. Now that the people have approached Yahweh in humility, now he tells them what they've been waiting to hear all along, really what they presumed they were hearing when they weren't, which is that he will deliver them. He tells them, go up again, and then he adds, this time you will be successful. Now that's interesting when you think about it, right? Because he sent them two other times. One time implicitly, the second time explicitly. Now he's sending them with the promise of victory, which would seem to imply very clearly that when he sent them the first two times, he sent them into defeat intentionally so but we can see why we can see why it had value if you want to work in God's will if you want to receive blessing from God and yes he is a father in heaven who knows how to give good gifts to his children far beyond what we do for our own children so yes he is a God inclined to blessing his children that is true but if you want to seek for those things you first have to approach him on his own terms in Israel's day the terms that God set that he demanded were that they approached according to the law through the Levitical priesthood by sacrifices and the like. Today, under the new covenant, the Lord has opened a way to himself for all people through his Son by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. So the manner has changed. In fact, it has improved. It has fulfilled all that was prefigured in the law. But there's still a manner. I mean, there's still a way in the sense that you cannot approach the Father except through the Son. As Jesus himself said, the saying that all roads lead to heaven. What a great lie by the enemy, right? It takes all the pressure off. I I can still do whatever I want because literally anything I do leads me to God. Isn't that awesome? Test that in your heart. I mean, does that even sound right? That'd be like you telling a kid, doesn't matter what job you get, you'll be as rich as Bill Gates. I don't think that works that way. Or like your mother always told you, it's Mother's Day, right? So we have to acknowledge mothers are perfect. Mothers always tell their kids they're the best looking smartest, tallest. You knew your mom was lying. You knew it. I hate to break that to you on Mother's Day, but I'm sorry. 
You're just the smartest little boy. Mom, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. But I love you for saying it. Now, sometimes it's true. (laughs) You can tell when someone says something to you that you just know it can't be that easy. Right? That's not always the right thing to say because there's people who hear the gospel and they say, well, that can't be right. It's too easy. I just believe and I'm saved. I get it. It can be used both ways. But in this case, when someone tells you it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter where you go in life, what you call yourself, you're going to be in heaven when you die, that does not sound right. Because if that's true, Hitler's there. You know, pick your famous bad guy. I don't care. Pick one. That means they're there too. Well, does that sound right? Is that a heaven you want to be a part of? I mean, I'm not saying that's how we know truth. This is just intellectual theory. But what I'm saying is, when you sense that, that's your first clue to go seeking for the right answer, not to accept the nonsense. And Israel, in a way, at this time, had come to that kind of a conclusion. I mean, the phrase, doing what is right in your own eyes, is somewhat like saying, all roads lead to heaven. It's this ecumenical uh, nonsense that suggests that truth doesn't matter anymore. God was still there. (laughs) He still had a relationship with this nation through a covenant that they weren't going to get out of just by ignoring it. And as they stood before him in this last effort, before they went into battle the final time, They were finally ready to approach him on the terms that he had laid out for them from the beginning. That they always could have used had they chosen to. When they approached him according to the methods, according to the heart that he specified, what happened? He responded and did the right thing by them. Again, not a genie, not someone we can control, but now that there's a true relationship, now we can work in his will. But before that, you're just butting your head up against a wall. And God's wall is a lot harder than your head. So we have 40,000 men gone. We have 12 tribes who have, at least for the moment, made a turn back to the Lord. Now it's Benjamin's turn. Now we have that final tribe who has to suffer God's wrath for their own sin under the law. And to be clear, Benjamin's chief sin was not the sexual sin that we read about in Gilbeah. It is their own rebellion against the Lord. And they rebelled, if you remember, by siding, by protecting all the men within their tribe who had committed those atrocities in Gilbea and not bringing them out for justice when they were asked to by the other tribes. That's their sin. Their sin here is one of not preserving unity to the nation, instead trying to protect their independence and their own arrogant self-control. So, then the Israelites go into battle a third time with the Lord's blessing, and now you see the outcome, verse 29. So Israel set men in ambush around Gilbea. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gilbeah as at other times. The sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And they began to strike and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways. One of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gilbeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. The sons of Benjamin said, They are struck down before us as at the first. But the sons of Israel said, Let us flee that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. Then all the men of Israel arose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even out of Maharagevah. When 10,000 choice men from all Israel came against Gilbeah, the battle became fierce. But Benjamin did not know. The disaster was close to them. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Take a quick look at the chapter as you look at it in your Bible. You'll notice we've still got a good section left. 
Where we stopped right now, though, is at the end of an overview. So we've seen a very quick summary or overview of how this battle played out in its third act. After that in the text, from verse 37 onward to the end of the chapter, you see the same battle described a second time in more detail. We'll look at both today. We're not going to spend as much time as you might expect for for the number of verses that are there because one is a repetition of the other. What we'll do is we'll look at the overview and then we'll just highlight some of the new details that come out of the second summary to finish the chapter today. So in the overview, you find out what the basic battle plan is. The basic battle plan that the Israelites have come up with involves drawing the Benjamite army out of the city of Gilbeah where they are holed up, protected behind a wall. And once they get the force away from the city, then they're going to ambush them. They're going to surround them out in the open and they're going to destroy them that way. So the way they do this, according to the summary, is initially the tribes send a small force, a scouting force, up against the city of the Benjamites. Now the Benjamites, of course, respond by attacking back, as you would expect, and they start to to win. They start to kill some of the folks in that scouting party, and the skirmish moves outside the city, and as you see, the Benjamites start to think, oh, we're winning again, just like we did before. But that's merely a diversionary tactic. That's what the tribes wanted the Benjamites to think. The ultimate plan is to ambush them outside the city. So, as you saw, the smaller force retreats. The Israelites who are being defeated at the city turn and run, knowing that that's going to draw the Benjamites after them. Sure enough, the Benjamites leave the city unguarded to go chase down this smaller force. With the city vulnerable, then you have the larger force of the Israelites, 10,000 elite troops, descend upon the city and conquer it. Now, notice in verse 35, we're told, the Lord delivered the victory to the tribes just as he promised. And that's important just because we don't want anyone reading the story to get the wrong impression. This victory is not due to superior military tactics or any such thing. They won this time because the Lord gave them the victory and therefore by logical conclusion they lost the earlier two times because the Lord didn't allow it. It's just that simple. But of course we're still in the time of judges, right? I mean you've noticed this better, right? Every time we seem to get on a good track I ruin it for you. Well, I'm sorry. Even when the people of Israel follow God, at least for a time, like they do here, nevertheless, they still find a way to do what is right in their own eyes. So in the next section, in the detail that follows, what you get now is a zeroing in on one aspect of what took place so as to highlight it. That's why the writer divided it the way he did. He didn't want your overall interest in the battle or its outcome to overshadow the real point of what's going on here. And the real point is, even as they follow God, they cannot stop following their own flesh. And so the people that prosecute this battle, they end up going far beyond the needs of the battle and committing new atrocities against the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 36. Let's just read down to the end of the chapter. When the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin, because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gilbeah, the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gilbeah. The men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now, the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city. Then the men of Israel turned in the battle, and Benjamin began to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, for they said, Surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned. And the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. And therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, while those who came out of the city destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded Benjamin, pursued them without rest, 
and trod them down opposite Gilbeah toward the east. Thus, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. But they caught 5,000 of them on the highway and overtook them at Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. So there's your detail. And as I said, it repeats the story, but now you get a lot more of the gory detail. In particular, you find out that once the Benjamite city is taken, the tribe begins to sack and burn that city. It was going to be a sign to the rest of the troops, right? The plan had been that when you see this, the city burning, that's your sign to know that we have conquered it. Then you can turn back around on the, the Benjamites who are chasing you, squeeze them back toward us. We'll come out of the city. We'll fight them from the other side, a pincer movement, if you will, and we'll get them from both sides surrounding them. Sure enough, it all works out pretty much just that way. But then, as that battle takes place, 18,000 are killed, that's not enough. It should have been enough. That's all that was necessary. But instead, they run after those who are fleeing, which is a very cowardice thing to do amongst your brothers. This is in violation of the law, in fact. The law says that there was not to be a spirit of revenge within Israel against itself, against one another. Justice is one thing. Revenge is something entirely different. But they didn't observe that. They ran after. They killed as many as they could. After that, we read in verse 48 that the people kept fighting. In fact, they went and they burned every single city in the area of the, of the Benjamin territory. I mean, everything. They want this tribe extinguished. Literally. Do you think you're acting in a godly fashion when one of the tribes of Israel tries to destroy another tribe of Israel? No. No. That's clearly not in keeping with God's heart. They're seeking total annihilation. It's severe treatment, it's excessive, it violates the law, and there's no reason to continue this pursuit. Why do you do it then? Well, because it seems right in the eyes of those who are doing it. It's just that simple. And as a result, they leave only 600 men in the tribe of Benjamin. And this introduces a new problem in Israel. The potential extinction of one of the tribes of Israel. You have only 600 men now who can procreate, who can continue the line of one of the 13 tribes of Israel. If these guys die without producing any heirs, then the promises of God are in jeopardy. Now ultimately the seed promise doesn't go through Benjamin, we know that. It goes through Judah. But there is a whole set of things promised to happen to this nation that includes a tribe of Benjamin. That if that tribe were to be extinguished, it would put in question all of what God has promised to Israel. If God's not faithful to them, who is he faithful to? Our own confidence in what God has promised us through the covenant we have with Christ would be at risk if he's not faithful to this one. That's how serious this sin is. That's why the writer puts this story at the end of the book. It is the climactic conclusion of all the sin, of all the rebellion that we've seen take place during these days. We've said already, this event happened earlier in the book. It's not chronological to the events of of Judges. But it's, it's been saved and placed here at the end so that we would understand that it has come to the point now where the sin in Israel is so great, even the very existence of this nation is at risk. If God doesn't do something to stop it, it's going to tear itself apart. What we'll study in the future chapter, the final chapter of this book, is how the Lord protects, preserves, and keeps that final 600 men in such a way that they have the tribe of Benjamin continue on after that. 
And then as we leave this story, we'll end up with, as I've said, one more story that finishes the book of Judges. It just so happens our final story is not in the book of Judges. It's in what we now call the book of Ruth. So the book of Ruth is the final footnote story to the time of Judges, written for that same period of time. We'll do that as we finish. But next week we'll get into chapter 21 and prepare to finish this book, which I'm sure you are all anxious to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to study your word. Even when on days like this, it seems to be a reminder that there is just so much sin, both in your people and in the people who follow you today, to say nothing of the world in large. How hard it can be, Father, to remember that we come to you not as a genie, but as a God who has all the power, all the wisdom, all the righteousness, all the glory. We start with zero, Father, and we stay there. But for your grace and mercy, we would have nothing. And even after we've been made a child by faith and we've received the righteousness Christ appointed to us by that faith, it's still the case that we will, we will live in our pride and our sin, even still. Father, I confess I do that. I confess, Father, that I think twice about myself before I think once of you. That my concerns become your concerns when I pray when it should be the other way around. We know, Father, that each of us share in that, at least to some extent. Forgive us of those things, Father. Forgive us for, for making this all about us and forgetting, Father, that you saved us to bring you glory, that we might be useful to you in some way for the kingdom. And you don't need us. You've made that clear, Father. You, you work because you have the power to work with or without us. We join you in the work. And we do that, Father, so that we may be blessed to be a partner with you in what you've determined to do already. Let us seek for that partnership, Father. Let us seek to come to you as you desire in the way you've asked. First and foremost by faith in your Son, but even after that, Father, in humility. And a recognition that it is you and your word that does the work of this world, not us. That our desires are so often fleshly, Father. Give us a heart for things eternal. Give us a mind that wants the truth. And Lord, thank you for the chance to hear that again this morning so that we're never too far from it. Send us out of here, Father, renewed and determined to serve you in greater strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.